Welcome to the Dystopian Republic. I am your host, Raul Guerrero. Our story for today begins on the morning of November 11th, 1984. His speech, now finished, Gregorio Jr. didn't waste any time having those under him and on his side transform Brumelia in an image belonging to him and his yellow cross. That brought life to the devastation he caused, descending La Cordillera del Est, Pais del Carbón, La Gran Lanuda, Bahia del Mercado, La Costa del Norte, Las Grandes Cascadas, Meseta del Cielo, Costa de la Grande, Desierto del Sudeste, and Humedal Costa Sur into a chaotic mass panic. The idea of living under Yellow Cross rule was too much for some to stomach and for others to live all over again. It despaired thousands of men, women, and children into taking their own lives. They felt as though their deaths were sealed and that making them painless by their own hands was their only way out. Thousands more desperately fled into the sea in battleships, destroyers, ferries, schooners, ships, barges, boats, catamarans, canoes, yachts, gondolas, hovercrafts, sailboats, trawlers, and submarines, and took to the skies via airliners, jets, aircrafts, balloons, tilt rotors, airships, helicopters, gyroplanes, gliders, biplanes, monoplanes, and seaplanes with destinations in Asia, Oceania, and the Americas in mind. When the exoduses came to his attention, Gregorio declared that Brumelia was now under martial law and that all people on Brumelian soil were to immediately report to their nearest police or sheriff precincts where they would receive their duties in regards to rebuilding the nation to its former glory. His declaration was not successful in stamping out the pandemonium, fuming him into ordering his troops to quell the chaos by any means necessary. From the biggest metropolis to the smallest settlement, those troops swarmed the paved streets and dirt roads angrier than provoked yellow jackets in triple-digit heat. They trounced the youngest of kids and oldest of elders like criminals evading custody. Some were wrangled up handily while many more escaped their harsh grasps. The troops resorted to lethal force to wound and cripple resistors into surrendering. They showed little, if any, pity to the terror the people they got the better of screamed and cried out, save for those who escaped into the terrains that hid them in nature's labyrinths. 
the troops stopped many vessels from setting sail and countless more already at sea by slowing, crashing, shooting, and bombing them out of commission. As for those escaping by air, many of them were directed back to Bromelia by troops who sneakily ran amongst them, beating, stabbing, and shooting the pilots and taking over the controls. In spite of their best efforts, the troops weren't able to stop every boat and aircraft from fleeing. But that was of little concern to Gregorio, who knew that the escapees would likely be returned to him by the country they raced to for refuge. All the confidences he had in the world were based on his belief that no political faction abroad would accept them. The escapees were seen as too socially conservative for the liberals and too fiscally liberal for the conservatives. With that matter out of the way, Gregorio returned his attention to transforming Brumelia legally, ethically, politically, economically, socially, technologically, and competitively. The panicked exodus his coup caused broke news internationally from wall to wall. It grabbed by the throats the attention of other countries, including the United States and Soviet Union. With the Cold War ongoing, the two sides focused their attention on the refugees on the move to their areas of land and looked the other way to the regime now in charge, provided that they don't attack their borders or people. At courthouses, every title and section of legal code, federal, provincial, and municipal was amassed into towering piles drenched in leaded gasoline and set aflame. The court personnel, kissing his ring, gathered around the book fires, holding hands and watching in astoundment as rules and regulations dating back to 1856 were incinerated like firewood. They delighted in their faith that never again can democracy counterpoise their power. The shelves that housed the late books were now home to a legal code that was in accordance with Yellow Cross law. Its titles and sections were the dictates of conscience, the ethicists on Gregorio's take dedicated their lives to implement. Their concept of right and wrong centered around each person's relationship with the Yellow Cross. Nowhere in their philosophy was there any hint of rights or liberties. Prisons and jails of all types sorted their inmates by unit, crime, gender, age, and surname. The prisoners wondered why they were forced to assemble at the prison yard. They felt more in the nude than a skinny dipper right after a swim in an ice-cold river. Then 
Gregorio's greeting came out of the intercoms, knocking them all sideways. His greeting began a recording he mass-produced for all wardens to broadcast. Gregorio told them the reason for living now was to work at maximum efficiency, build state-of-the-art products and services, and let his regime feed. And they may feed also if they want to, but only after they've proven themselves worthy of such a luxury. Having said that, he warned them to walk down the path of compliance and not the one of resistance as the latter will lead to agonies they will not like. Gregorio informed them that they, in particular, would be wise to toe his line as they're the trash that society threw away, having only their lives to lose. As an ex-convict himself, the spot he had for the prisoners was as soft as soapstone. His opinion of them was that they were lost souls in need of direction and purpose, and the perfect group of people to metamorphose into subservient punishers. In the circle office, Gregorio did a photo op on a private telecast signing executive orders that outlawed opposition parties, suspended civil liberties, banned communications abroad, criminalized overseas information, forbade anti-regime sentiments, confiscated private property, sealed off borders, rationed essential supplies, and instituted a full national lockdown under penalties of a swift, certain, and severe nature. All facets of Bromelian society became tentacles for the Yellow Cross to work like inchworms. Each business of every industry was under the total control of the Bromelian Products and Services Corporation, the Yellow Cross's business arm. Gregorio saw to it that not a single person or thing could contaminate the nation's ultra-nationalist purity. But even a person of his character knew that his rule wouldn't stop everyone from hatching and enacting plots to bring about its downfall. That was why he typed on paper the names of every person he viewed as either too far gone or all but irredeemable. He had a multiplicity of things in store for the males and females on that list. In Alexisville, helicopters hovered over and around the precincts adults and children reported to. On the ground, the glowers that citizens saw on the troops guarding them shivered their cold sweats. Boys and girls of all ages hugged men and women, young and old, fearful 
of what might be heading their way. That was when caravans of school buses came flooding in the moment troops went ballistic, ferociously separating the kids from the adults. The precincts concomitantly degenerated into frenzied dishevelments, overwhelmed by howls and balls. Those howlers and ballers darted hopelessly for an impossible emancipation. As a result, noses were scrambled, brains were concussed, skins turned black and blue, clothes were ripped all to hell, bones were broken, muscles were torn up, teeth were blown out, nails were snapped off, nerves were severed, blood was spilled out, organs were perforated, and lifespans were cut short. The troops felt nauseously morose stuffing the kids into school buses and packing the adults into all the other buses. To them, the people they were moving along like factory farm animals were forward lookers who could wipe the yellow cross off the face of the earth. Naturally known for being a bastion of Brumelian liberalism, Alexisville has leaned left in every democratic election. Gregorio had a particular disliking towards the residents who populated that city. During the presidential campaign, his rally there barely filled up a high school gym, having only slightly more supporters than protesters, indicative of his 98 to 1 loss over Habsburgo V in that municipality. Not to mention the feds had to foil a number of assassination plots against Gregorio, all of which were devised by conspirators who resided or were from Alexisville. It was pretty much a given that Gregorio would have a deep-seated hatred for the city's people. Yet the people of Alexisville had next to no clue as to how that hate of his would come out and whether they were the only residents whom he hated to such an extent. Regardless, forced separations like theirs transpired across the mainland. The dead were pitilessly loaded into trucks of various shapes like whole turkeys. As for the wounded, they were restrained and driven away to undergo medical treatment. But no matter their welfare, every Bermelian had a purpose assigned to them. In one of the school buses, troops stood on the aisle, ready to attack on impulse. The teenagers they watched over sat submerged in their contust excruciations, their hearts forlorn by the futures they planned to realize going up in smoke. They hoped and prayed for the best, that the separations would be the peak of their suffering and not preludes to pains, distresses, and hardships of greater severity. 
But should those hopes and prayers not pan out, they swore to have each other's backs. Meanwhile, peace and quiet was the norm at Colchester, a small country town spread over a cluster of hills hidden well and truly by the Cascades. That tranquility carried its hollow winds over into an auditorium built, supported, and footed by fibrous bark. In yellow hiking jackets, black button-downs, loose-fitted khakis, and rugged shoes, adolescents filled its church-like pews in trances, sunk a bottom, a melancholic swamp of rage, long pent up and due to erupt ultra-violently. They're fresh out of weeks and weeks of beatdowns, undernourishments, chastisings, and brainwashes. Among them were Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin, four teenage adults who had a lot more to prove than their comrades. After all, their parents, Dulio and Erasma Espinal, Ladislao and Isara Kagigas Nicanor, and Ryan Lida and Aurelio and Tecla Purissima were the eight who ran the camp they were at, Camp Sunshine. Elsewhere, troops conducted full sweeps of populated areas, raiding indoor and outdoor spaces of all shapes and sizes, arresting those who were unable or unwilling to report, and killing any and all who attempted to evade custody. Those killings petrified the arrested into submission and persuaded the resistors to surrender. Soon after, white buses with fenced windows transported the non-reporters to the nation's many prisons, all of which were going through refurbishments, renovations, and redecorations that went great distances beyond the penal institutions. At the Bromelian capital, troops smashed piece by piece the monuments that memorialized Habsburgo Jr., Catalina, and the mothers and fathers who founded the nation's original democracy. As abhorrent as their destruction was, it wasn't the first time a location that housed the federal government was devastated. Portraits as far as the eye could see lined frame to frame down the hallway. Baldrick, Mauricia, Marcos, and Catalpa sternly stood at the far entrance of. They inched inside and looked vacantly at the dignified paintings hanging before them. As one, the portraits timelined every presidency from 1857 to 1934 and from 1961 to 1984, excluding Habsburgo Sr., Gregorio Sr., and Alexis Jr. Baldrick looked intently into a portrait of Burr Crawhead Jr., 
1913 to 1917, while Marcos, Mauricia, and Catalpa, respectively, did the same. 2. Walpole, Castillo, 1917 to 1920, Hamilton, Rosario Sr., 1920 to 1925, and Kirahaso, 1925 to 1934. Those presidents were known as the four horsemen who brought Brumelia out of its isolationism and onto the world stage. The four saw a bit of themselves in their ancestors, nationalists who did what had to be done to make the nation the best it could be in the world, resorting to any measure necessary to get every single thing they asked for. Who Burr, Walpole, Hamilton, and Cura were, and what they did secured their places in the Yellow Cross's history. The four carefully removed their portraits from the wall just in time for the troops to raid the hall, throwing, stomping, tearing, and trashing all the others. All the studying they did on their ancestors awoke them to the sentiment that Gregorio was going to bring the Craje, Castillo, Rosario, and Hasso names back to their former glories. Speaking of whom, he looked over the quick rundown of the labor policy, Lyndon, Mendizabal, Alexis, Saviola III, and Gabino Palacios Jr. crafted as per his request. Known as the three amigos, Lyndon, Alexis, and Gabino were liberal legislators who defected to the Yellow Cross on the promise that their collectivist program be realized. On the surface, the three men were of a kind Gregorio hated with all his heart, their reputations as socialist hardliners long preceded them. Yet beneath that surface, their idea of socialism was in sync with Gregorio's concept of nationalism. A meritocratic collectivism where diligence is rewarded and sloth is made an example of. The three men were the only liberal legislators who didn't endorse Habsburgo V, desiring that his unbromelian behind get clobbered at the ballot box. They spared no breath in attacking him for being a disgraceful, disgusting sellout and failure while expressing their openness to working with Gregorio, never bashing him or his ilk once. Anyhow, Gregorio expressed his admiration for their proposal, stamping his approval and ordering that it immediately be put into action. They thanked him and stated that they each owed him one. Repayments he was confident they'd stay in good standing on. The adults who heeded his mandate to report were taken to work sites, lined up, assigned duties, given resources, and told to get to work. All day and all night, government buildings had 
all its remnants of the old era torn to rocks or burned to loose charcoal. The education leaders Gregorio handpicked relentlessly crafted a curriculum that allowed the young to see, say, do, and think only what the Yellow Cross wanted them to. Every course and program of study was designed to fuel the engine of the state. Gregorio was adamant about having a continuous flow of loyal working subjects to keep his state running correctly at all times. He valued, above all else, a society that was trained, ideally from birth, to love him and his cross without let or hindrance. Synchronously, white buses came caravanning into the jails and prisons, packed to the brim with people of all age groups who didn't heed Gregorio's mandate. The already incarcerated sensed the buses' arrivals from their cells. While on their best behavior, their impulses were lava domes building up. In one such bus, the arrestees were held at gunpoint by ticked-off troops, their bodies and emotions racked with pangs by the cruelty and callousness their arresters stooped to in separating them from their young ones. The arrestees prayed for the divine being to give them strength through whatever hardships they were about to come up against. Suns and moons rose and set as the mainland showered the destruction down the drain. Named desired infrastructure after fallen yellow crossers and built new structures and facilities that paid tribute to said slain, proudly holding high the solid black and yellow horned cross that gave the yellow cross its flag. Delgadopolis, once the showcase for free markets, melting pots, and the arts, was now just another exhibit for the corporation and figureheads in Gregorio's cabinet. Its billboards and screens boasted the company's coal, machinery, chemicals, produce, and meats. They also put in bright cursive letters the basis for the Yellow Cross Creed. Loyalty is black and white. Either you are or you are not. And if you're not, it'll be struck and talked into you until you come to that feeling, or until you come to your fate. A massive land encircled by lands of much lower elevation soared toward the clouds. Entire communities grabbed onto its steeply ascending slopes. At the top, that land dove thousands of feet into a pasture land where forests hid her and fit her. One forest in particular concealed from the world a gated town locked in a gothic darkness. That burg was none other than Lobo Town Maceta del Cielo. At its nucleus, a thick ring of trees hid from the rest of town a moated castle swimming its thick walls 
battlements and towers in black diamonds and gold. That preciously metallic swim extended into its inner boundaries and furnishings. Gregorio ate biscotti and drank creamed coffee, listening to a heart that was nothing more than lonely, thinking of the low his father fell to when his end came. He swore to all who loved him that his regime would be immortal one way or another. His vice-ruler, Alared Linde Sr., informed him that every facet of his new era program that was previously mentioned has been implemented successfully. Gregorio snarled his appreciation at Alured, who in turn smiled with a similar growl. They celebrated that smooth sailing with a toast and a sip of whiskey and water. The malted rye splashing around in their mouths made them high on their dream of bromelia, re-exceeding its throne as the world's global superpower. Gregorio and Alared had visions of the yellow cross flag waving sky high in every part of the world. Alured was a yellow crosser to his very core who kept his fascist and imperialist views silent because of his political position, always one to show and not tell his views. That was of little bother to Gregorio or his ilk as they knew that he was one of them. On January 5th the next year, all those days of non-stop work would show the results. The Grand Capital Park, where Habsburgo V's second inauguration would have taken place, kept quiet like it was just another day. However, the National Stadium had been converted to an extravaganza already to celebrate the Yellow Cross's second triumph before a crowd of its richest and most loyal supporters. Gregorio stood silently with Alured, Etchelstone, Linden, Alexis, Gabino, Baldrick, Mauricia, Marcos, Catelpa, his wife Itzaso, son Gregorio III, and daughter Gregoria in the dressing room, two-syllable chants of his surname palpitating their hearts. All Bromelians, regardless of their societal status, were compelled to watch the spectacle live on Gregorio's state TV. Aside from his glorification and that of the Yellow Cross, the viewers had no idea what to expect out of the forthcoming festivities. Gregorio powerfully wended his way to the field with named company in tow, the chair of the Yellow Cross, Richelieu Delgado, walked onto the towering and imposing stage. She convened the ceremony and introduced his confreres from Gregoria to Alured. Then Richelieu introduced the man of the hour, their one and only ruler, Gregorio. His entry on stage opened the floodgates to an impassioned, eardrum-bursting ovation. Gregorio, vain, gloriously, and forbiddingly 
savored that scorching hot reception. He welcomed his bromeliads to the ritual that'll hammer in the final nail in the coffin for the age of democracy that nearly tore Bromelia apart, that was well on its way to turning the nation they loved into a slum at the mercy of hoodlums, predators, and vagrants. Gregorio stated that the time had finally arrived for a reprisal 24 years in the making, a revenge that will water the tree of security with the blood of the damnable. A marching band played to the troops' perfect march onto the field, escorting the captured legislators, judges, and staffers he listed as too far gone, responsible as far as he was concerned for the nation's walk down Death Lane. Their blindfolded, handcuffed, and shackled emergence generated an equally loud and emotional tsunami of booing and hissing. The infected cuts, swollen bumps, unsightly bruises, outstaking bones, mangling their naked bodies, frightened the lives out of the post-coup prisoners watching, the younger ones especially. The captured were tied by barbed wire to the tall, splintery, and thick wooden poles that circled between the field's penalty arcs. Their suffering, purely physical, their mental states were in one piece, assuring them that their fates won't be in vain, that their captors will soon collectively drown in a lake of hot, molten rock. The band played to the troops' marching exit into the stadium's inner confines, and the yellow-crossed youth's machine-gun-wielding and saluting entrance. At the front of that marching line was its chair, 14-year-old Caprice Vicario, whose Cancerian artlessness made her the optimal poster child for its boys and girls. Caprice marched her long line of subordinates into a circle that enclosed the captured. Gregorio told his captives that it's time for them to pay for their crimes against the Bromelian people and their society, stating that bullets will now blast through their bodies until they are dead, and wishing that God casts his mercy upon their souls. He instructed Caprice and her youth to present their arms, take aim, focus on their target, and fire like the wind. The spraying gunfire and blood got the crowd cheering, a soccer crowd's cheers, but it also detonated blasts and shockwaves of wailing grief and anger among a huge portion of the viewers. They curved, bowed, bent, and drew up like newborn babies, spun and stumbled into a body-sliming loss of consciousness, ran away like screaming banshees, dementedly came to blows with guards, or were too ghost-white in the face to even emote. As for those not in that portion 
they either looked on with an indifference empty of even the tiniest crumb of sensation or sensitivity, felt what that portion was feeling, but were extremely desperate to hold it in, or were thrilled at the deed being done. The thrilled cheered while jumping up and down excitedly, clapped their hands off, celebratorily toasted their beverages, and kissed as the gunshots kept coming, or simply watched on in salivating veneration. Whatever the reception, the mass execution succeeded in getting every viewer to respond in one way, shape, or form. A great many miles from the stadium, no cheers, music, gunshots, or reactions could disturb the peace of a densely forested valley and the mountains funneling around it. The forest ascended its trees and undergrowth two-thirds of the way up the steep hills. Nothing, not even the sun's light, could slip into its brush and bark. Under that green and brown veneer lied a campus-like military colony making exemplary use of the valley's floors roughly 14-mile-long diameters. Rivers under the floor and simulated farms supplied its food and water. Militants too many to count and armed to the teeth patrolled every acre of the colony. A dome-shaped bunker sat at the colony's nucleolus, encircled by a plexiglass dome and protected by the heavily armed checkpoints circling it from its far side. In a stylishly utilitarian media room, the televised execution of the captured continued on and on. The number of shots each captured person sustained past the hundred mark. Caprice and her youth kept the bullets coming until their ammo ran out, settling the bloody, powdery smoke and revealing corpses disfeatured beyond recognition. The vivid close-ups those corpses got, coupled with the crowd ecstatically eating up the macabre display, was enough for Roy Sr. to aggressively shut off the television. His clenched fists Feverish glare and growling breaths showed his want to go to the stadium and kill everyone there. That want was a temptation stopped only by his sense of responsibility for his colony, its innumerable contemporaries, and what remained of freedom in Brumelia. He spent the rest of the day and the night that followed calming down and channeling his indescribable rage into something rational, constructive, and above all, effective. The next morning, Roy took his radio communicator and, with the help of his compatriots, hijacked the Yellow Cross's radio signals. His transmission caught the attention of all who were in hiding, whether in communes or the other colonies. Roy greeted the people of Bromelia, telling them 
that now was the time for them as a people to stand up, take up arms, and fight the fascist traitors of their nation. He understood the fear, keeping many in shadows, but said this, sitting and hiding will only ensure that the traitorous occupiers reign in perpetuity. That swayed the hesitant to stand strong and valiantly with the eager and the unwilling to have second thoughts. Roy told those still hesitant or unwilling that their wishes will be respected, but warned them that actions will absolutely be taken against them if they intentionally harm the revolution or willingly aid the regime. His warning got the two groups it was directed to thinking very, very deeply about where they stood. Still in all, some communes declined to get involved, such as Nunez Court, a gated sexaplex all in its deserto del Surestean Lonesome. Static waves filled the living room of the main residence where Roscoe Sr. and Skye comforted their teen kids, Roscoe Jr., Wynne, Adoline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette. Prior to Gregorio's declaration, the Nunezes were completely in the dark about what had happened the previous night. The parents stayed strong and stoic while their kids shook in their shirts, pants, and shoes in the bluest funks they've been in to date. Never in their lifetimes have the kids ever been in as much danger as they are in now. In the face of that danger, they decided to not dwell on it and carry on with living as normal. Roy proclaimed January 6, 1985 as the day that the Brumelian people declare war on the Yellow Cross, swearing on his life and to God that Gregorio, his cronies, lackeys, and everyone else in his camp will pay for the atrocities they've committed. The atrocities they're committing and the atrocities he knows they'll commit. The adrenal high his speech gave him didn't blind him from the fact that he started something that couldn't be taken back and now had to be finished either in liberty or in death. It was a start that every Yellow Cross member, including Gregorio, would get an earful of, hopping them mad, very mad. Although the start that the new era had gotten to was devastating already, it would purely be a sneak peek of the catastrophic horrors that were to follow. And as fate would have it, the coming decade would shatter egos, dissolve principles, and kick backsides. And that, my dystoblicans, was the start of a new era. Thank you so much for your listening ears, and please be sure to share this show with everyone you know, and 
make sure they share it with everyone they know. Send me your questions and feedback at RaulGuerreroJr95 at gmail.com. And I highly urge you to support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Jr. Supporting the show ensures that its financial and creative autonomies are maximized. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another episode of The Dystopian Republic.